It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Before we begin, do not forget you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game before anybody else in the universe, except for those people who are actually in the ground, simply by downloading The Times app to your smartphone. In the studio today, I'm excited because we have Tony Cascarino, who was regaling us with David O'Leary stories earlier, and Rory K. Smith. But down the line, and this is why I'm really excited, we have Mr. Jim Proudfoot. So let's get started at Goodison, Everton, and Arsenal. Morales, so much space for Lukaku. Monreal sleeping again. Brilliant! Absolutely brilliant from Romelu Lukaku. Everton, two goals to the good. And believing that Champions League football could be here next season. I'm going to start with you, Roy, because I need some insight into Everton and Arsenal and just sort of this bizarre arc, especially with regards to Arsenal, where we're all down on them, then we're all up on them. Look, you know, Arsene knows he was right all along. And now it's like he's all wrong and they're going to lose out on the fourth place trophy possibly. Yeah, I think there's, the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, isn't it? The, the curious thing with Arsenal this season is that the last two years, possibly three, they've started badly but ended well. And that always creates a different kind of narrative arc, for want of a better phrase, to their season than starting well and ending badly. You're always better off ending strongly just that way everyone thinks you go into the, the summer and then the next season on a high. The problem Arsenal have got now is that they are collapsing. It infuriates me watching them because they, they just set up the same way every single time. It, there's not, they're good players, good team, you know, quality players, all that. But if you were the opposition manager, you're trying to work out what, what's coming against the, you know, the, the next team you're facing. You look at Arsenal and think, well, do you know what? They're good at football, but at least I know exactly what they're going to do. You never see Vendy do anything different. You never see even a slight tactical tweak overloading a specific fullback, hitting more crossfield balls, anything like that, more switches of plays. They don't do anything. They're just, they're just Arsenal relentlessly, and it's not working, and other teams have worked them out. And it looks like it's starting to affect them psychologically, but that shouldn't be on a different note, that shouldn't kind of detract from Everton, who are, I mean, rapidly, it's between them and Liverpool and Crystal Palace for story of the season. I think Everton have been superb, and I think it'd be, it would be, it'd be brilliant for the Premier League if Everton got the Champions League place. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, JP, I, I read Tony Barrett's excellent match report in, in the Times today, and Tony Barrett, who had some sort of weird Twitter thing going on with you, Rory, right, where you're talking about moisturising and things like that? Yep. There you go. Correct. And you thought Barrett was a, was a hard, shaven-headed scouser. But he made the point that Roberto Martinez in this game did something pretty simple. He Good pronunciation. Thank you. Uh, a tactical switch. He put Lukaku in a wide area. And he kind of made the point that you would never expect Wenger to go and mix something up like that. And Wenger made no adjustment, had no answer to it. And so you had this sort of giant of a man running it. Nacho Monreal with, um, with, with the excellent Seamus Coleman behind. And there was no adjustment, nothing. And that was a big part of the Everton win. Now, you, you, you follow this game. Is he right? Yes. 
He's absolutely right. And, and this is what Rory was just saying just now, the, the fact that you know exactly with Arsenal what you're going to get. Whereas with Martinez, we had a look at the team, didn't expect that he would do that. As soon as he started up lining up like that, where you've got um, Lukaku and Coleman against Monreal and Podolski, if I could have got a bet on after two minutes on Everton winning the game, I would have piled onto them. Because it was just obvious that Arsenal were never going to have an answer. And the, wor- the man who was likely to be, and probably turned out to be, the worst player on the pitch, Nacho Monreal, was never going to be able to deal with the threat of Lukaku um, running at him, cutting in onto his favoured left foot from wide positions. Positionally, Monreal and Vermaelen together don't play well as a unit. They ha- I don't think they ever have done. And it was just tailor-made for Everton. It was just a question of almost getting a chalkboard and Martinez walking up to it and going, OK, 1-0 to me. Well, and Arsene Wenger would just would put his coat on and stick his hands on his hips like he always does when things go wrong and, and, and wonder exactly what was going to happen next. Well, and not to mention that Vermaelen's not the biggest, not a, not a great physical match mm. for uh, Lukaku either. I, I'm interested in this, Tony, because obviously from, from your perspective, I mean, you, you were a, a larger, uh, sort of stronger, more physical striker. When you create mismatches like this by putting, you know, the guy you expect to be the target man out wide and it works, you know, you look like an absolute genius. When it doesn't work, you know, you you get criticized for what's it that, A, has anybody ever asked you to go and and Mm. do a job like that? And what's the dynamic where obviously you're going to be up against somebody who's generally going to be smaller and a lot quicker than you, but how do you, you can use your your physicality in the wider area, but then again, you're further away from the goal. Can you just talk a little bit? Um, well, Millwall signed Paul Goddard back in the late 80s, who was a technically very gifted, I'm sure you remember the lad, Paul Goddard, who played, he was playing at Derby at the Luke's time. brother. <laughs> yeah, well, he came to Millwall, and John Doherty wanted to go with separating me and Teddy Sheringham and put Goddard and have me play a wider role. And I was like, really? You didn't want to go up and, and run up and down the fight? No, well, he just said to, he said to me, I want you to, we're playing Forest away, I want you to go up against Stuart Pearce. Uh-oh. So I've gone, You're why, why do you want me to go out on, against Pierce? He said, well, physically, he, you'll, you'll give him a threat. You'll worry him at the far post. He, he won't be so eager to, you know, to push forward if you're pressing him the whole time. And we went and won 2-1. And I was like, oh, no. I'm now going to be a right winger come. And he switched it again. He went back the other way. He said, no, I was only doing it for one particular game. He said, I wanted to stop Pierce. He's such a threat for Forrest. And I thought, out of all our forwards, you'd be the one who'd be able to stay with him. Because as well as I wouldn't look it, I was very good at endurance. I could run 50 metres quick, well, quite quickly, but I could do a number of them. And he just wanted me to stay with him. And... So you were basically well, man-marking Pierce. Well, yeah, he asked me to go against him. And, of course, when you win the game, you, then it, it justifies his decision. It's so hard because Lukaku yesterday, it was painful. It wasn't just that watching. It was the fact that, like you said, Coleman, Lukaku, and on the other side, Sanya was up against Morales and Baines. And it was like, this is two against one every time. Does the manager on the... You know, it was, it was embarrassing for, to watch because I've, we've seen things happen. And, and I can understand from a... Managers have these great ideas sometimes. And when they backfire, imagine if Lukaku played there and it all gone wrong and Arsenal comfortably win the game. There'd have been criticism of, of using Lukaku in that way. But as a highly paid manager, you're expected to make these decisions and get them right. And clearly... Martinez did because he looked at Arsenal, he looked at their weaknesses, their fullbacks are never protected and they're asked to get forward as well. It's it's a recipe for disaster that's been deja vu so many times. And Gab, what you say about the fact that there is always this, there's never any shaded ray with Arsenal, is literally sort of Wenger's the greatest manager in the history mm. of the world or, and everything's right, he's finally got everything right or they're terrible, he's got to go. The, the reality is that I think somewhere is somewhere in the middle that Wenger changed English football immeasurably by telling people mm. not to drink and smoke. He is a, he's brilliant at setting a team up and set, sending them out with a, with a clear idea, a clear identity. That's really important. But increasingly, in a game of, of increasing fine margins, mm. he can't react to the slightest tweak, and that's a real weakness. It doesn't mean he's a bad manager or that he's suddenly irrelevant, but it means that he does kind of have a, almost a fatal flaw. Uh, can I just add one thing? The one thing that stands out for me, and I've, I've done a column about this on a couple of times... I'm sorry to say it, but I think he's a hopeless tactician. I think he's hopeless. Do you not think that the success of both Martinez and and Rodgers this season is a victory for coaching? 
there's, there's, yeah. there's always been this idea that, and we've been sold this kind of myth that managers have to have time. They've got to be allowed five or six years at least to, do, to actually do anything. You can't change things overnight and that you've got to bring in your own players and the right players. What Martinez and Rogers have both done is, is prove that you can take a squad that's not, that's not perfect. In Martinez's case, it's largely not really his own. He brought in, I think, four or five players in the summer. But, you know, they're, they're David Moyes' players. They've been kind of conditioned to play in a certain way. And he's coached them and he's made them not, not just better players in a lot of cases, but kind of different players. Let's go back to Wigan. Remember how... Sean Maloney played. Remember how McManaman played for him? Remember how Rune Coney played in that forward line? He produced a team with loads of flair at Wigan that were great going forward. They had their deficiencies defensively that was there to be seen. But I tell you, as a forward adventurous coach, I think he's shown immense qualities. I, I want to make this real simple. Cass, <laughs> imagine you're Stan Kroenke. You have a moustache and you don't speak. You would look great with a tash. <laughs> God appears to you. And says, all right, the season's kind of screwed, but I like you, Stan. Um, you can either win the FA Cup this year or you can finish fourth and win the Wenger Trophy again. What, what do you choose? What's best? What, were, what would Stan say? What is best for Arsenal? Well, I think because of their long sort of waiting for a trophy, it has to be an FA Cup, winning a trophy. I, like, I dislike so much what's happening at that football club that I actually feel that the change is, for me, inevitable, that they have to make at the very top and coming full form and winning the FA Cup. For me, I, I, I see the future quite bleak for Arsenal. I said last year that Arsenal, that a year out of the Champions League, if you assume that Arsenal say they can cope financially without a year out, I think they probably can. I don't know if a year out of the Champions League might not be a bad thing for Arsenal. I, it didn't look at any point this season like they might, might miss out. You now wonder whether they will. They've, they've got probably a slightly easier running than Everton. Everton do have it. If they win the game in hand, we'll have a two-point advantage. But I, I, just, I just feel as though Arsenal kind of need to be shaken a little bit out of this torpor. They're just, they're just sitting there. They're, they're, there seems to be no one in the club. The fans are different, but there's no one in the club who's saying, like, we're doing okay, but... Why? Why are we only doing okay? Would you Every- sack Wenger? Uh, well, I, I've got a sneaky suspicion. Uh, I, I thought that if Wenger won the lead this year, he'd leave. I, it looks right, to me like I don't think that's going to happen. So would you not sack Wenger? You'd, I think I'd hope. I'd probably hope that he'd maybe see the writing on the wall. You wonder whether if they won the FA Cup, he might think now's okay. the time. Notice how he evades my question. Let's see if you can be more direct, Tony. Yes. Played in now towards John Flanagan. Adrian comes out. Flanagan goes to ground. All the referees given the penalty. Adrian clearly getting a hand on the ball. Flanagan taking a tumble. Penalty given. Well, he put his first one to the right of the goal as we look at it. Second one goes the other way. It's a brilliant penalty under pressure from Steven Gerrard. Right, we're doing something different with our other game, uh, Liverpool and West Ham, because... I think what was interesting about this game were actually the refereeing decisions. I, I don't know that there was too much else particularly interesting about the game. Oh, that and the fact that Andy Carroll complained about the fact that, you know, smaller players get away with stuff that he doesn't get away with. I'm going to chuck this to you, Tony, for obvious reasons, because you are you were the, the Andy Carroll um, of your day, uh, certainly more so than, than any of us. Andy Pandy, more like. <laughs> A bigger man... Jumps against a smaller man, bigger man, stronger, more impact. Is he right? Does he just get called for more fouls because he's bigger? Did you have that problem? Well, I said to Rory about two weeks ago, I think it was Rory, didn't we? We were chatting. I said I wouldn't take Andy Carroll to the World Cup because I think international football, more so than Premier League football, that you'll be given fouls against you often. And, yeah, it was a problem during my career that... Certain teams, more so again in international football, if you use your ability, your strength to just, you know, nudge someone, not in, you know, without a blatant push, you'd be, the referees would blow up. They would. Now, it was okay battling against Tony Adams and Stevie Bold and, and a referee could see that we were two big guys going for a ball and, um, you know, you could probably, they'd sort of see. But once you went up against a smaller, you know, I, we used to get told, pull on the fullback. Put on the fullback, we'll play a ball at the, you know, especially with Ireland, we'd go directly on the fullback's head. And if you came in and he was a small bat and you caught him and he went tumbling down, you was guaranteed, you know, you was guaranteed to be given a foul. So why did he keep telling you to do that? 
Uh, well, Jack loved the tactic of doing it, but you just hope <laughs> Des- sometimes... Despite all available evidence <laughs> you know, yeah. to the contrary. <laughs> Despite all that, yeah, that, that we, right. we use that. But a club football, it was slightly different. And I can sympathise him to a certain degree, but I do feel that Andy is sometimes... His attempts to win the ball are nearly like a tackle. You yeah, know, he's it, literally his arms and... His lit- you just feel that he's well, too aggressive. It, it's... For the goal yesterday, he's jumped up and he has got the palm of his hand and he's pushed the face of the opposition goalkeeper. Now, whether that's it's him or whether that's Alan Wright or whoever it is, you know, you could be six foot eight or five foot nothing. That is a foul. That's nothing to do with you not being protected by the referee. That is a blatant foul. What, what about the theory that the evil Martin Skirtle pushed him and because Andy Carroll's so big and he's in the air and Skirtle's so strong, he gets pushed into... Minulay, and it looks a lot worse than than it really is, simply you, you because sh- Carroll's so ne- big. You should never discount the possibility that Martin Sturtle's pushed someone. Uh, no, at, I, all, I'm, I'm, at all stages of, of life, it's worth considering: has Martin Sturtle just pushed him? <laughs> no matter what's going on, right. away right, so nobody pit. buys this argument. It was a it was a foul. It was just a stupid thing to do. I mean, what is he no, just, just not thinking? No, 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 no. I'm no. really going to get away with putting my palm in Minule's face. It, ha ha ha! It was it wasn't stupid. I think if anything, it was, well, he did get away with it, so he was right. I think if anything, it was thoughtless in the literal sense that he wasn't thinking about it, and he just happened. His arm went into the wrong place, and do you know what I mean? I don't think he was trying to do anything. Mm. Again, it's one of these things we watch in slow motion, and it looks like he's pushing his face away. It's not. He's just got a big. He's got. He's, <laughs> he's a big paw. He's just got a big paw, and it's kind of dangling about everywhere. The, what, what I would say about that game. Well, that goal, the, the, the farcical thing was the refereeing. I, I hate criticising referees. I hate the way we, we constantly have to sort of have a conversation about, oh, the referee did this, that and the other. But for Anthony Taylor to overrule his linesman looked a lot like he basically wanted, didn't want to look a bit of a fool by having given the goal and then having to contradict himself. It looked like he was okay. protecting his own back more than anything. So Although you, I can't thing. read Anthony T- Andling Taylor's mind, and I'm not comfortable casting such a spurs. But then, what? So what? He's gone over to the linesman and said, "Why have you flagged?" The linesman said, "Right, maybe well, he thought he I had saw a, a foul." And then Anthony Taylor said, "Nah, you didn't." It's a goal. <laughs> Is that what's happened? I mean, what? maybe the linesman says, "No, I wasn't flagging. I was just stretching my arm." I honestly don't know. The other sort of big issue was the what um, was the Flanagan penalty, and I thought this was interesting because this is kind of how I saw it, right? If we leave aside for a minute the possibility that Flanagan might have been going down before, uh, before the tackle, which I think is, is 50-50, I thought it was the typical case where Adrian obviously gets to the ball and he obviously touches the ball. But by the same token, he doesn't know he's going to touch the ball and he kind of makes sure with his other arm and that he just grabs Flanagan's leg and pulls him down. You know, as if to say, like, oh, I think I touched the ball. Now in the follow-through, I'm just going to take you out just in case. So I, I know it's one thing if you win the ball and then you go into somebody and, and, and whatever and a tackle, but is this a bit dirty, Cass? <sighs> is it a bit ick? Um, it's kind of like, oh, look, I've touched the ball. Now I can I got a free shot at you. I'd say what, it's a coin flip situation because... It really is, isn't it? Uh, it's, but that's where I think, uh, you know, I... I've, I've talked to I'm blue in the face about this. I think penalties are a real problem in the game. The way they're developing, the way they come about, the way that I see slow motion deciding, you know, a, ta- a sort of uh, a mechanism that's put in place to, to prove a point of penalties. And I just, I just find them incredible that it's just a regular occurrence every weekend. That penalties are given for so many different... You could argue both ways. You could say, I didn't think it was a penalty. I thought we got the ball first. And like you said, but then he's follow through because he doesn't take the ball cleanly with no. his hand. He clearly he gets part of it, it and then takes his leg. <laughs> so and the, and the, the ball's still in play at that point. He's not, dropped two hands. he's not come out and claimed the ball in two hands. The ball is still kind of rolling around. Which is why he had to take him down. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I don't know. I think Cass is right. I think we've got an issue in terms of... I think of, this is just one of those grey areas. Where you, well, who knows, basically. You really don't know. Uh, JP, are you, uh, are you as, as uncertain about this as, as we are? No, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more old-fashioned than I thought it was a penalty. He's, he's come out and has played the ball. I know that he hasn't really knocked it out of John Flanagan's path. Flanagan is still going through. What do you want the goalkeeper to do? He can't when he sees play developing, get a stick out of the back of his net and just poke the ball away with a stick out of Flanagan's path. That would be a brilliant development. 
It would. You know, what a, a sort of an Inspector Gadget long arm, a, a long finger just comes out and just flicks it away, which you can then withdraw so that no part of the body makes contact with Flanagan on right. his way through. I think that the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper probably had at the back of his mind, if I come out and take the ball, my momentum's going to take me into the player anyway. Oh, that's a shame. Do you Flanagan's think- thinking, he comes out and takes the ball, his momentum's going to take him into me. I'm going to make sure everyone can see that there's been contact between them, between us. I think they've both been a little bit cute. Uh, Do you think, think it was just his momentum? You, you don't think that he actually makes an effort to, to bring Flanagan down after he touched the ball? I it looks to no, me like he, he reaches he, up and grabs his leg. I, I don't yes, know he, I mean. he, no, he does, he, he does. His body comes out and then as Flanagan is coming, is coming past him, he then does turn and his, and his other arm comes up and catches him. Whether his other arm has come up and he's and desperately tried to grab hold of him to make sure that he doesn't go through, I don't know. But yes, I, now, I know exactly what you're saying. The replay does show, the reverse 18-yard angle replay does show that he's come round and has actually made you know, a, a seemingly some kind of contact after the initial momentum contact in a bid to, to hold him. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't think it was a penalty. Now, the reason I wanted to go through this is actually, you know, for the avoidance of doubt, referees... Sometimes there's decisions which I think are just really, really difficult in real time with replays. I think we ought to recognize that. I, 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 will, I think referees can always improve and always be better. But I really think on this one, uh, it was a lose-lose situation yeah. mm. um, I agree with you for Taylor. Taylor. Unlike the first one. Do you like to say something about West Ham? So I saw West Ham at Sunderland on Monday night and didn't really pay much attention to them because Sunderland... Glad to know you're paid to be there and you're not really paying attention no, no, but I was, it to was, one of the teams. When you, when you do a game like that, it, you, as, a, as a journalist, you, you concentrate more on the better story. So the story on Monday night was Sunderland, it was their battle against the drop. So I, I wasn't necessarily sort of watching how West Ham played with any, in any great detail. I was more concentrating on kind of Sunderland's battle for survival. I watched the game yesterday, uh, the West Ham-Liverpool game. Uh, don't have any particular problem with Sam Allardyce, don't mind the way he plays the game. I think every, everyone's got a right to play their own way to interpret football. I think that's its glory. But there was just something so incredibly unimaginative. And I know you've got a, we- a weapon in Carroll that's kind of unique almost in English football now, in football generally now. You don't get many strikers like that who are that sort of proficient in the air. But not even to have kind of anything even vaguely approaching a, 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 second, a second way of playing. It was literally... And we talked about Arsenal being easy to set mm. up against. It's the same with West Ham. That it's hard to deal with Andy Carroll. Obviously, he is a to use the technical term, a handful, at least you know that that is literally all you're going to have to face. And I, it's weird to see fans booing their own team, especially when they win. But if I was a West Ham fan, I've got to admit, I'd be a bit like, well, is this it? Is it just kind of, we're going to punt the ball to Andy Carroll and then see what happens? The deliveries weren't even it weren't even particularly clever deliveries, apart from the one where he hit the bar. It's just kind of There's aimlessly a... punting it in the air. It's very frustrating. The... Um people who own Norwich decided to dispense with the services of Chris Hewton. I thought it was a bit harsh this past weekend. I, I thought they actually, they didn't look so bad to me against West Brom from the highlights I saw. And Rory's making a face because he disagrees. Ollie Kay made this point on Twitter last night that they have, except for the next game, which is kind of one of those sort of relegation six-pointers, uh, they have four horrible games after that. And there's no real point in changing managers now. But then some people in this room think that Chris Hutton should have been sacked a long time ago. That's not a but. That's not a but. That's, those, those two views aren't mutually exclusive. I'm not suggesting that. Good. Why should he have been sacked a long time ago? Because they've been terrible to watch for ages. And they've, they've not scored goals. They just look like a team that weren't, are going nowhere. I quite like Norwich. They're playing yellow, so I want them to stay up. Um, does it add to the, sort of, the jamboree of the Premier League? But they've, if, if they'd sacked him in... January or February, when results were, were just as bad as they are now, when they, I mean they, they're just trying to go in nowhere, Norwich, and they, they've been saved. They look like they might stay up purely on everybody else or the incompetence of three three other teams. That shouldn't be enough. You feel with Norwich that if they change, and, and I like Chris Hewitt's a lovely fella, he's one of the good guys. But if they change manager earlier in the season, they might have had that little kick so that by the time they get to those horrible games at the end of the season, they, they were roughly safe. They could still go down. Because you might get a, a Fulham or, you know, less likely a Cardiff or a Sunderland putting a run, of, a run of games together. It looks to me like they have panicked really, really late. The one sort of caveat to that is that if you look at the, the other three or four examples of managers who've been sacked in April with four or five games to go, it does tend to lead to a massive uplift in performance. 
Well, I can think of a specialist who came into similar circumstances last year and uh, and kept his team up. But I won't mention who it is. I'll leave you to work it out. I no. think you've got to look at Norwich. Last year, they could have gone down. With two games to go, there were yeah. three points clear of, of Wigan. And they had no momentum. They were in a terrible run of form. And their last two games were at home to West Brom, who had nothing to play for, and away at Manchester City, who had nothing to play for. And as a consequence of that, they've, end, they've ended the season in an artificially high position in the league, in that sort of bunch of teams between 46 and 41 points. There were eight teams, and they happened to be one of those. They ended up finishing 11th, and that looks respectable. But really, they could easily have finished 17th, and there couldn't have been any complaints. I think that would have been a fairer reflection on where Norwich were last year than finishing 11th. This time round, lo and behold... They've wasted money in the transfer market and they find themselves 17th. And you've alluded to the horrible running that they've got. I mean, the last four games they've got are absolutely horrendous. So you think they've probably got to get the job done, got to get up to 36 points by the time that they've played Fulham next week. Well, the problem is now they can only get to 35 and the last four games are Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea and Arsenal. Now, you can make a case that Arsenal at home on the last day of the season now is a, a, pretty, a presentable, pretty presentable fixture for them. Mm. And United as well. If, if fourth and fifth are safe, but they won't go to Old Trafford and win. Um, no. They won't beat Liverpool at home. No. They won't get Old Trafford. Chelsea. You mean United's home record? Come on. Yes, they've lost to seven different sides in the Premier League this season. They will not lose to Norwich at Ooh, Old Trafford. Also sprach Nostradamus. Um. <laughs> I think I th- I think with their away form is lamentable. I think he's been one home defeat away well, from the sack for a long, long time. The th- the thing is that he's then managed to string a record together at Carrow Road where they haven't lost in seven games. They haven't been particularly convincing. They've beaten a bad Spurs side. Okay, they beat Sunderland last time out, held by Stoke. But away from home, they've lost seven in a row. Mm. So I think he's been one home defeat away from the Saxon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since February, which is when everyone was calling for his head. We'll get to the issue of his replacement in a minute. But, uh, Cass, I'll ask you because obviously you, you, you've known Chris Hutton for, for a long time. And I, I'm wondering if the situation was as negative as these guys outlined at the end of the season, if there was a sense that things got stale at the end of last year, I mean, what do you think is, how would you have handled the situation? Would you have gone to the club and said, look, you know, I've done my job, I've kept you up, maybe I should go somewhere else, I've got a good mm-hmm. rap, or should you have said, maybe we need to go and no. spend our money differently? I mean, did you think we need to go and invest all our money in Rick Van Wolfswinkel? Chris is a very loyal man. You only have to look at his playing career uh, to know that Chris would not be the type of guy to go to boards and demand and he would always see that he would be as professional as he could be. It's pretty obvious that he got hugely wrong in his buying the strikers that he did in the summer. hasn't worked out. Christmas he could have gone. I was surprised that Chris didn't put more pressure on trying to get a player in at the transfer window uh, forward to try and find goals from somewhere because that was clearly the biggest problem that he had. Wait, let's just, talk, just outline who his strikers are for a minute. Well, Van Winkle, Gary Hooper, Eldemar, uh, Elmander. Elmander, Eldemar. Now, uh, did, Elmander. I, I was shocked because of those three. Like, I, I thought yeah. Gary Hooper's, I thought he was bad in Scotland, even though he scored a lot of goals, mm. let alone here. Uh, the, Van Wolfswinkel, there's a reason why he ended up in Portugal. And... Elmander, I actually didn't have a problem with. Thought veteran guy, big body. Might give you some. Well, and also let's not forget there was uh, Becchio as well, wasn't there from Leeds? You know he came in as well. You know, which is you're looking at the four forwards. You could question all of them, and I just Chris. Chris obviously knew that he was. But was he in charge of the transfers? Well, I'd like to think he would have been. I mean, was nobody else to be in charge of him? You know, they have a guy that I think he works very closely with a guy. I can't remember his name at Norwich that goes around and does what many many of these chief scouts or whatever they're called now, they've all got different names, but they literally look at every indicator of a player, don't they? Mm. They look at everything they do and they have all these charts of how they do and clearly the charts have proved differently because them strikers, between the lot of them, I don't, I don't know, it's, not, it's a handful of goals, isn't it? 
between yeah. the lot of them. You know, all four of them have come in. So Chris got it hugely wrong there. And I don't believe the club wanted to back him in buying a player because it was clear at the window that they had to do that to give them any chance of staying up. But at the same time, you can understand that because you look at his transfer yeah. record in the summer and he'd, he'd spent 25 million quid. The, the difference between the former TV rights deal and the current one, he spent that. And it, I mean, Leroy Fur's been all right. Um, that's kind of it. Snodgrass? Yeah, that's, that's well, early. No, I know. As, yeah, as they, yeah, I know yeah. they were doing what they could to build the glorious um, Leeds team of 2009. Can I, can, I just, can I just add that Chris is a real footballing man and he would be deeply, you know, every day, 24-7, like a lot of managers are, he would be absolutely going through every detail of making that team. I saw them play against Man City at Carroll Road and I thought they played really well and they looked a decent side. And it seemed that when they played the really big games, they, they actually played better. And when they come up against lesser t- sides, they'd, they'd struggle. Away from home, absolutely awful at times. Awful. In terms of the replacement, I read yesterday that somebody had never heard of named Adams, not Tony, funny enough, mm-hmm. or Mickey. Some other dude was Ansel. Ansel. What? Ansel. Ansel Adams, yes, taking time off from his photography and the fact that he's been dead for years. <laughs> I thought he was the new manager, but then Dave McGuire, our producer, helpfully shows sh- sh- a piece of paper and says that some obscure newspaper reporting that Malky Mackay is the favorite to replace him. Does anybody actually know? Is this guy Adams the, the new manager? Or? Well, the statement yesterday that Norwich released suggested that, that Neil Adams would be who won the lead with Everton in 1987 and therefore is perfectly qualified to manage <laughs> Norwich City in the Premier League. Um, Neil Adams, who's d- done a lot of good work with their youth team, to be fair to him, yeah. would be... Um, would be in the statement suggested he would be in charge for the rest of the season. Now, I would imagine that what would normally happen in those situations is that if a candidate who they like becomes available, they will get him in. The danger for Norwich, the, because of the way they've timed it, is that if he's not in charge for Fulham at the weekend, you, you, you question what the point is. Because is Malky Mackay or whoever really going to become come in and be so successful so immediately that he can get? suddenly turn those four games at the end into wins. I would guess that Adams will be given the Fulham game. If they lose that, they might then decide to kind of accelerate the process of identifying a long-term replacement. I think it's very unlikely to be Neil Adams. In the game today, uh, Matthew Syed, who won an award. Uh, you want to tell us about that, Roy? Uh, he won two awards, I think. He, he was voted Sports Columnist of the Year and Sports Feature Writer of the Year at the SGA Awards. And there you go, and you weren't. Um, uh, I was not even nominated. Neither was I. So he, he writes in his column today, which, which I think is an interesting read, whether you agree with him or, or, or disagree with him. I, I, I disagree with him heavily on his 10,000-hour rule, for example. But he makes the point that ultimately fans, if we don't like diving, it's because of the – diving exists because of the hypocrisy of fans. That I guess fans are, are ultimately the public, the audience, and they influence how the actors – perform because they are after all thespians and if we were less tolerant of it and if we didn't go and like you know shout handball every time the ball strikes a player in the stomach for example then players would be less prone to to cheating and in, 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 simu- in simulation you're looking at me with a quizzical look Cass are you are you on board with that I mean is it ultimately the fans fault um, well football we all play a game and I've said the biggest I'm saying it's not prob- I said problem. I think the reason why so many millions love football because it reflects so much about life of cheating, dishonesty, of winning at all costs, and and and, it, and football for me is the is a reflection of the you know we all will be calling for things and the fans demand that of players you know and players get caught up and it's, it's a, it amazes me because there's very little etiquette in football. And I love other sports, especially golf and the etiquette of, you know, the way that players wouldn't be, che- you know, wouldn't cheat or it's frowned upon. Other players would look at you as so disrespectfully. And yet in football, if you're a, you're a player and you run and you get a penalty and you go tumbling down, get up, you'll have players cuddle you. They'll love you because you've won them a penalty, have even if cu- it's dishonest. Have you ever, I know you've never taken dives for penalties, but have you ever cuddled a cheat? Well, yeah, sometimes there's gains, isn't there? It's not just financial gains, but gains of winning things. So you get caught up in that emotion that you win at all costs, and football is a big part of that. So you're suggesting then that the players are hypocritical about this too, Well, every, just the fans. everybody associated with football at some level. Fans, players, managers. I've seen managers Jim. do things on sidelines, and Jim will tell you, he commentates, that sometimes it borders embarrassing that, to get their team to win. Fergie was an art in himself about getting his team at win at all costs. And do things. Jim, yeah. I, 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 I want to check this to you because 
Um, because the nature of what you do is I think you're probably closer to the fans than, than the rest of us are because obviously, you know, Tony was a player, Rory and I are, are journalists. We, we tend to be in sort of a little, um, what do you call it, a little ivory tower where we only talk to other journalists and people who are cynical and people in the game or even more cynical. Um, but are, are fans that bothered by things like like cheating and, and gamesmanship and so on. I mean, the Times a few years ago ran this big campaign. We published posters of the no diving campaign and whatever. And Side makes the point that nothing changed uh, as a result of it. Um, is it because fans are hypocritical or is it because fans actually really don't care? And despite all the talking heads on television who are out there complaining about cheating and diving, ultimately the fans really could care less. I'm prepared to say that I'm probably the only one out of the four of us that regularly pays to go and watch the team I support play football. I stand to be corrected on that, but but I I am a fan as well as a you know a, a, a genuine fan. It's because you lot are all so busy with all your your myriad of commitments and uh, you, you know office for work coming in left, right, and centre. I actually get some spare time so I can you know go and do it. But it doesn't is, is bother that a me. Pitch, Jim, is that are you pitching? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was a very subtle one. <laughs> And my mobile number is. Um, no, I, 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 I think that um, it doesn't bother me. If one of, if, if one of my player, if, if the player for, for the team I support wins a penalty by slightly dubious means, I really couldn't care less. If, if the opposition player did it, I'd be up in arms. Exactly, be, that's football, Jim, shouting. isn't it? But, but then, that is football. That's, exactly. that's, what, the sport, the that's what the sport is about. You're the embodiment of the hypocrisy that Syed is campaigning against. That he's yeah, bravely trying to am. eradicate from. I probably am, but I think that ninety-nine percent of fans are like that. Right. And, he, and he's all, it's it's all well and good standing up saying, "Oh, yeah, I'd like to be holier than thou," and uh, you know it, it's absolutely disgraceful. And it doesn't go as far as a Maradona or Thierry Henry moment of you know punching the ball into the net. I wouldn't want that to happen. But a player having the nous as a striker, the the striker's art, as it's known, of winning a penalty. I've not got a problem mm. with that. If it, it, as long as long as he's wearing, you know, the right colour shirt. Football if is he's, if he's not, it's lamentable. Football <laughs> is in a lot of ways the hypocrisy of life. You know, the way we all carry on and you know, the 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 wife or the girlfriend runs off and has an affair with somebody else and then they do it to them you know it's just all it's I think that's part of what football reflects so much about the dishonesty and the hypocrisy of life and like Jim said if it's the opposition we're all up in arms if he dies for a penalty we're calling him cheap we're you know radio phone-ins and debates are going on about how he cheated or if if you're a fan of that club it's not. It's not that way. And Tony Castorino has a self-help book published later this year <laughs> called Football and Life, Do What You Want. <laughs> All right, speaking of football and life and dark side, and this is one more cross-promotional item, and, and uh, Maguire can't complain that I'm running too long because I'm cross-promoting. And actually, I really think the game this week is full of really good content. I, and I, I'm supposed to say it's like that every week, but I think this week it particularly stands mm. out. Because the other thing we have in here is, so there's a man named, named Diego Torres who's a, a, a Spanish journalist, and he wrote a book which has been translated into English, which is serialized in the game. It's called The Special One, The Dark Side of Jose Mourinho. This is amazing. There's like two pages of extracts here. Uh, I'm assuming we've all we've all read it. Um, some of the stuff he says, just to give you a taste, one of the things that, that really resonated with me was um, in, in, in April 2011, they, they, they lost to Barcelona 2-0 in the first leg of the Champions League um, semifinal. And because of that, Mourinho kind of concludes that they've got no chance of going and, and overturning this at the camp now. And he's probably right. It's highly improbable. So he tells the team that, look, it's impossible for us to go to advance. I won't accept us going out there and you know losing three or four nil in trying. So we're just going to go and play for the nil nil draw. We'll try to keep it close, nil nil, lose one nil, lose two one, and that way we can go and put all the blame on the officiating in the first leg, which you'll recall was the one which featured the whole porque rant and the, mm-hmm. the blaming of Frisk and UNICEF and all that jazz. There's a lot of nuggets like this in there. What strikes me is this is a pretty serious and vicious accusation to make now. I'm assuming Diego Torres isn't making all this up and that they have libel lawyers in Spain. And the fact that we published it means that presumably we have libel lawyers here, too, that this is fully backed up and and, and sourced. I was really shocked by this. Cass, can you imagine, have you ever had a manager saying, like, 
well, look, we're screwed, but let's make sure we lose in this way <laughs> so that then we can go and blame the referee and we won't lose face. Uh, I'll tell you what, as soon as you said that, it takes me back to the quarterfinal of the World Cup 1990, played Italy in the Olympic Stadium. And uh, Jack Charlton called everybody down to reception. We got two kegs of Guinness to have. And his talk before we were allowed to have a drink on the night before the quarterfinal was, you're playing Italy in Rome. The referee will give them everything. You'll be going home. So have a good few pints. You'll sleep brilliantly tonight and we'll do a good performance. And I remember playing games. And Ray Houghton, I'm sure, would have told you, with the police and everybody involved at the hotel. We all got blitzed. All of us. And... Slept like a dream, played the game. Obviously, we lost 1-0, as Jack predicted. But it was such a surreal, because his whole idea was that he didn't want us looking in the room at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, looking around the room, thinking about a quarterfinal of a World Cup. And you're fit, so you'll sleep it off in the afternoon, you'll be fine for the the final. It wasn't as sinister as what you're talking about, because this is far darker, what Mourinho and things. But it just takes you to another level of how managers must be so fearful of what they say today for two or three years down the line. Because if there is any evidence of ch- truth, um, which I probably believe, like you, lawyers look at it, it would be a real big concern from, for well, managers. I mean, the, 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 the key thing here, just to clarify, somebody who's written three books and uh, yeah. has dealt with libel lawyers and yeah. stuff, the key thing here is that somebody told Diego Torres this and presumably yeah. signed affidavits or whatever, testifying that... that that this is actually what happened. Someone in the room. Well, so in the somebody in the room. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of we detail. Should, we should there's a the lot point. of rumor as to who, as to who it is. We, I think but we, we should make the point that, that Jose, when this book came out in Spanish, which was a few months ago, Jose, I think, dismissed it all as nonsense. Diego is, an, is a very, very good journalist who is extremely close to quite a lot of the Spanish national team. That's a fair mm. thing to say. Diego is very well thought of in Spain when, with, with, from his work with El País. And he is good friends with... Yeah, I mean, I don't want to highlight anyone in particular, but with certain Real Madrid players who play for Spain. That's where this has come from. You can't be certain whether it's this one, that one, or the other one. But he, he is in a position to have this impeccably sourced. And the detail that is published today and the detail that's in the book in Spanish well, makes you think that it is, th- this is not the... I mean, Mourinho kind of dismissed it as the, as the sort of dribblings of someone's imagination. That's very unlikely. Well, the, here, here's, here's what gets me, Jim, and, uh, is that there's different possibilities here. If, if we assume that Diego Torres isn't making all this up, and I think pretty obviously he's not, then we have to assume that somebody told them this. And then from that follows on that either people told them the truth, and this stuff actually really did happen, or they lied to Diego Torres to make Mourinho look really, really bad. Mm. Um, I, I can think of very few situations where you've had somebody go to a country, you know, actually win two trophies, you know, win a league with a record points total, win a cup, and just leave so badly with so much bile, so much hatred to the fact that sort of nine months on, this is still going. This is serious, serious bitterness there, isn't it? Yeah, there's major serious um, bitterness, undoubtedly. There's a, a big agenda against Mourinho in Spain. Um, for seemingly the way that he acted when he was there. He, he's the kind of person anyway that, that polarises opinion um, and he polarised opinion in Spain almost to the exclusion of absolutely everybody. He's, he's not got a big fan club over there. Um, it's completely different the way that he's regarded there to the way he's regarded uh, here, for instance, and, and Italy's probably, Gab, I would say, somewhere in the middle. But, it, it, I mean, these are serious accusations that have been made. Yeah. But, it's the kind of thing that doesn't get into print, I believe, unless there's a semblance of truth to it. And he might dismiss it as as uh, being all baloney, but I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very brave call from the journalist to print that if he's made it up. Or, it, or if he's... He, at the very least, will be 100% convinced that his sources have told him the truth, at the very least. And you have to question... And it's kind of a, a, a double-sided question. You have to question if the, the, what Mourinho says is true, which is that it's all kind of agenda-driven nonsense from the people who've leaked it. You first of all have to question why a player would take that risk. It, it seems very unlikely. And on a deeper level, you kind of have to ask why, if it is, even, even if they have lied to Diego, why do they then feel that strongly that they want to lie to Diego? Now on to everybody's favourite part of the show, and let me remind you that... 
you must answer in 25 seconds, preferably less. It's what we like to call quick hits. Manchester City romp all over Southampton, but with a bit of help from an offside goal. Rory, did they get lucky, or is there really a three-goal gap between them and Pochettino's men? Pochettino, incidentally, so angry afterwards that he spoke in English. That's how you get him to speak in English. You exactly. just make him really angry. Um, th- I think there is a, there probably is a... Th- yeah, I don't know if there's a three-goal gap. City are obviously a better team than Southampton. Southampton have been brilliant this season. They did get a bit lucky. No question that Silva was offside. It was one of those rare offside decisions where it wasn't like a weird marginal call. He was just three yards offside. You don't, it's hard to say they would have drawn, they would have lost, blah, blah, blah. Because they, you know, City probably would have gone on to win anyway. But yeah, they got they got a little stroke of good fortune. But that happens in football. Speaking of Southampton, Jay Rodriguez's injury could be a blow not just to them but to England at the World Cup as well. JP, please discuss. Well, it's certainly a blow to Southampton. I don't think it is a blow to England's World Cup hopes because I don't think Jay would have made it into the squad. I think he would have been one of the the seven cut between uh, 23 and 30. He would have been in the initial 30 and not got on the plane. So I don't think it's a blow for England. It's a massive blow for Southampton. He's the second leading scorer in the Premier League who's English this season. He's had a fine time after that disappointing international debut. It's a massive blow for Southampton, not for England at this point. Juan Mata turns in a masterclass as Manchester United beat up Newcastle. Cass, are you ready to suggest that Moyes has reached some kind of turning point, or is it simply a fact that Newcastle are already on their summer holiday? Well, I think before the game, if you'd have felt that no Rooney and Van Persie, a huge blow that everyone's talked about, that you know, manage, Man United can't manage, and what was incredible about the game, and yes, Newcastle were really poor in the way they were taken apart, not just by United, but in previous games, that how it worked so well with Kagawa, Mata, Yanazai came on for Young, and then Hernandez always on the shoulder of defenders. They linked up brilliantly. And it's probably one of the best away performances, certainly in the league, I've seen from United. So sometimes you stumble on things and within your group, and although it won't be that line-up when they're both fit very often, it certainly gave more something to think about. Maybe it should be. They laughed at Fulham. Oh, how they laughed when they kept turning over managers and technical directors and directors of football and first-team coaches and consultants and Ray Wilkins' mates. But after the late win at Villa, who's laughing now, eh? Rory, are you prepared to anoint them as the team that's staying up, thereby vindicating Mr. Khan? I don't know if, if anyone should be laughing at Fulham just yet. They've given themselves a chance. Felix Magat is the right sort of manager that you want in that situation, I think, despite his weird habit of making people run up hills in the middle of the season. 38 players they've used this season. Of the... That's flexibility. Of the... Well, it's either flexibility or a paucity of quality. Um... Of the three teams in the bottom three, Fulham are probably the one that you think could stay up. Sunderland and Cardiff look like like they're going nowhere fast. Uh, It all hinges on whether they beat Norwich. If they don't beat Norwich, then they go down. Chelsea roll over Stoke, but Mourinho isn't happy about the fixture pileup, which means clubs have all played different numbers of games and cities, all these matches in hands. He says it doesn't befit the best league in the world. Wondering why he's talking about La Liga when he's in England. Oh, no, sorry, that's that's, that's not fair. JP, any solutions? And... Are you as bothered uh, by all this as uh, as Mourinho is? I'm certainly not as bothered uh, by it as Mourinho is. It doesn't uh, make any difference to me. I'm looking at the table. City have played 31. Liverpool and Chelsea have played 33. Everton have played 32. Who cares? doesn't matter. They'll all have played 38 at the end of the season. Yeah, but it's sequencing. Timing is everything. But games in hand are a benefit to Manchester City. They're not a benefit to Sunderland down the bottom. You, you get the narrative and you fix it around what you want to say. The only reason it happens is because here, unlike every other country, the Cup basically is a weekend competition, or unlike most countries, the Cup is a, week- is a weekend competition and it isn't a midweek competition. So that's why there is this disproportionate number of games. It doesn't matter one iota. Tony Pulis' Crystal Palace win at Cardiff 3-0 and it's now looking bleak for Vincent Tan's crew. Cass, would things have turned out this way if your pal Malky Mackay had stuck around? <laughs> well, Second Malky Mackay reference <laughs> of the show, by the way. I'm sure that Malky would have had a better return than Ole Gunnar Schalska. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, I mean, Cardiff, it was, a non, it was a non-contest Saturday between the two managers. I thought Tony Poulis was always going to set Palace out to be very, very difficult to beat and counter-attack with a bit of pace and... Oli's got it drastically wrong because, like I said in earlier in the show, without the ball, you've got to be a far better team. And Cardiff are so easy to play against. I think Malky would have had 
a far bigger opportunity of keeping them up and a better return on points, definitely. Uh, Gab, one for you. Not about Jason Punchin's mountain England credentials, but uh, about FIFA taking a big stick to Barcelona, punishing them for the signing of underage overseas players. What is your take? Well, first of all, they've been banned for, for two transfer windows. Um, most likely, well, we know they're going to appeal. Most likely the appeal won't, the run of appeals won't be completed because they've got an appeal with FIFA and then an appeal with CAS. Not, not CAS. Yes. No. The Court of Arbitration The Court of Arbitration Sports. Rather than Tony Castorino. Yes. I think it's an, it's an issue. I think the main problem here is that they told them like a year ago. They said, like, you've got a problem. You cannot do this. Um, you can move players under the age of 18 if they either live near a border if, they're, if it's a move within the European Union or if they move for non-footballing reasons. Like maybe they're refugees or their parents are economic migrants or they're wealthy expatriates. But this isn't the case with these 10 guys and, and – they told them, this is no good, you can't do this. And Barcelona's defense, I think, is the most infuriating part to FIFA because they say, well, look, you have these statues in because sort of 10 years ago there were these unscrupulous people who were getting like 20 African kids, making them live in a box, and then if they didn't turn into the next George Weah, just kind of releasing them on the streets and, and, and exploiting them. Um, but we don't do that because we're good. We take, you know, we, 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 we work on the man before the footballer and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a little bit like saying that if you're Sebastian Vettel and you're a really good driver, you can drive 80 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone because you're a good driver. And this rule exists for bad drivers and dangerous drivers. And um, I, 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 think it's, uh, I, I think they're really going to uh, put the boot in. All right, enough of this. Hope you enjoyed this very long bumper show, which uh, uh, McGuire will really enjoy editing down. <laughs> many, many thanks to my guest today. It's great to be back after my uh, holiday. Uh, and just as a reminder to who they are, it's Mr. Tony Cascarino, Jim Proudfoot, and Rory K. Smith. A quick reminder, because I haven't told you enough times, every single week you can catch all the Premier League action via the Times app. So please download it now. You can also check out the times.co.uk for some brilliant writing, um, especially by the three of us here uh, on the panel. Um, well, less so from Jim Proudfoot because he doesn't write very often for a newspaper. <laughs> but there's very good things that we told you about. There's this Diego Torres serialization. And, of course, there's Matthew Syed, winner of multiple awards. Of course, you can also buy the physical copy of the paper and go old school. That's what I like to do when I retire to the bathroom. Uh, and best of all, it does not require an Internet connection. Uh, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Hi, I'm Tim Montgomery, the presenter of another Times podcast from the opinion pages called Did You Read? It's the perfect weekly snapshot of some of the best writing in the newspaper. Find out more by heading to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and search Did You Read to subscribe on iTunes.